0: Well, let 's begin by praying, Heavenly Father, uh, we are so grateful for thirteen years of scum of the earth church. Um, who thought it would have gone this far and as I look back in my memory, Lord, I, I see those those moments like Leonor talked about that are just shining ever brighter as the years go by. Um, you have blessed us beyond measure, uh, just the fact that we're standing here in a building that we bought and then reconstructed is a miracle in itself. So thank you for that. I ask that uh, you would bless the reading of your word and my preparation. Uh, Lord, go beyond what I have prepared and uh, let your people hear your words and put them to good use like a wise builder who builds on the rock. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you weren't here uh, last week, we began a new series on the ancient book of Daniel from the Old Testament. Um, I highly suggest if you haven't heard the opening sermon in the series, you do. It's kind of critical, like the first step in any journey is the most important. I think the first uh, message in this series is important as well because it sets up a conflict of cultures, in the case of the prophet Daniel back in uh, 600 B.C., it's the Babylonian culture versus the Hebrew culture of his upbringing. And the question was, last week, does a book that old and uh, that takes place that far away have anything to say to us today here in 2013 a Western United States of America? And I think we made the case last week that, yeah, it's probably got a lot to say. Uh, We're going to continue with with that idea in terms of uh, this conflict of cultures. And today I want to talk about the whole idea of confronting the culture we live in. We are like captives in a foreign country. In that, you are part of the kingdom of God, which has vastly different values than the physical place you are living, called planet Earth, or in this case, the United States of America. In a lot of ways, we saw last week that the ideals of Babylon and the ideals of at least modern Western America are very, very similar. And so what that does is for us as Christians, strangers living in a strange land, is that it puts us in a position where we have to make some choices if we're going to continue living in the kingdom of God, but placed here in this culture. How do you not cave in to the culture? A culture that is in conflict with so many of your philosophies, your thinking, your ideals, your hopes, your dreams. Iris Murdoch wrote that in crucial moments of choice, most of the business of choosing is already over. In other words, if you get to a critical point in your life and you haven't made some decisions beforehand, you haven't made some choices already, that when you get to that critical moment, it's too late. You're going to cave. If you hadn't decided, for example, that when you are at the office or your place of business and you find somebody's wallet on the floor, in that moment when you find hundreds of dollars in the wallet, it's not the time to be deciding, I'm not going to keep what doesn't belong to me. That decision needed to be made a long time before that. Maybe even in childhood when you read the Ten Commandments. Maybe back when you were in high school when somebody stole something out of your locker and you promised I'm never going to steal anybody's stuff again. You see? Because when you're confronted with a free hundreds of dollars windfall, it's too late to make that choice. Even though you've heard since you were little in our culture finders, keepers, Losers weepers. Now, we talked last week about how enticing the culture is. It's not just enticing. Because if you don't go along with the way things are, it's going to be made difficult for you in this life. Yes, your enemy is seductive. And as Steve Garcia so aptly put it, the culture has weapons of mass seduction all over. What are those weapons of mass seduction is if all the seducing doesn't work, we're going to intimidate the hell out of you. What does it mean to seduce? It means to be able to lead people astray, to entice them, to trick them, to lure them into something that they normally would have not done, something that's against their better judgment. Part of what the culture does in attempting to mold us into its image, to wrap its arms around us, as I talked about last week, is to find out those places where we are weak, and then offer a solution, offer a way out, offer some temporary strength. From his book, The Art of Seduction, Robert Greene says on page 167, listen to this, this is chilling. Everything depends on the target of your seduction. Study your prey thoroughly and choose only those victims who will prove susceptible to your charms. The right victims are those for whom you can fill a void when who see in you something exotic, they are often isolated or at least unhappy because of perhaps a recent adverse circumstance. These people can easily be made isolated for the completely contented person is almost impossible to seduce. The completely contented person is almost impossible to seduce. You can't bribe a billionaire. Do you know that? It's impossible. So the culture, which is in conflict with us in terms of our values, We'll look for different nooks and crannies of of hurt, of weakness in us, and play to those areas. What, you feel like you have no friends? You feel uh, introverted? You can't interact with people socially? Here, drink this. If you drink enough of this, all of those fears will go away. We have an opponent, unseen. If there ever, I mean, I don't believe in most conspiracy theories that are out there. I just don't. But I do believe there is a deceiver, a devil, who orchestrates a lot of things against us as Christians. And if there's a conspiracy out there, it's his. And there are all sorts of unsuspecting pawns in that game of chess to get us where he wants us. And so if you've ever felt as you walk through life that there's a conspiracy against you following Jesus or a conspiracy against you living a holy life or a conspiracy against you actually doing the things you really want to do but just can't seem to find the strength for, it's because there is a cultural conspiracy masterminded by our enemy who is out to seduce us. And here's the deal. If they don't seduce us then they'll intimidate us. This following story will explain what I mean. We're going to read the annual chapter 1 again. So listen closely. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So there's a siege the last 18 months. Finally, the walls are broken through. King Jehoiakim, we're told uh, in the prophet Jeremiah's writings, tried to escape through his garden, through a hole in the wall, under cover of night. Along with his family, along with his nobles. And they get apprehended. They're chased by the Babylonian army somewhere near the plains of Jericho. They're captured. They're brought back to Nebuchadnezzar and his generals in Jerusalem. And this is what happens. Before the king's eyes, all of his sons are murdered, along with his officials and his noblemen. And so that is the last thing that he sees with his physical eyes. Nebuchadnezzar then gouges out Jehoiakim's eyes. Puts him in shackles and makes him walk the 900 miles back to Babylon. That is who these four young men we talked about last week in the first chapter of Daniel are dealing with. If he can't seduce you by means of his largesse, he's going to intimidate the hell out of you. Let's continue. or intimidate the heaven out of you, in this case. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Lavishing, education, honor, prestige upon these young men. Among those chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who's assigned you food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink, and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them. And he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let me make some points here, some observations is that one of the things we're going to see as we continue through this book of Daniel is that even though these guys are in captivity, God is still sovereign in their captivity. He is still the boss. He is still the God above all gods who are no gods in comparison to him. God will be confronted by and will confront the culture that these young men are forced to live in, and God will win. That's what you're going to see in this book. Babylon is a culture, really, of self. How do I know that? How do I know they celebrated themselves? Well, The prophet Isaiah speaks a prophecy against Babylon in chapter 47, verse 8. And this is what he says. Now then, listen, you wanton creature, lounging in your security and saying to yourself, I am, and there is none besides me. I am, and there is none besides me. You wanton creature lounging in your security and saying to yourself, I am. You know, how many people have heard these kinds of words from our politicians? We live in the greatest country the world has ever known. We have... The mightiest military ever seen on the face of the earth. No one can stand against our smart weapons, against our airplanes, against our ships, against our body armor, against our troops. We are secure. Why were we so devastated when the Twin Towers fell down? It was because it's the first time in hundreds of years that anything happened on our soil. We went through all of Vietnam, all of Korea, all of World War II, all of World War I, even the War of 1812, and didn't have stuff happening here at home like it happened over in Europe. We have been, in a way very, very trusting in our security. And we are a culture of self. It is all about you. Just turn on the television and look at the commercials during the Super Bowl or any other program, and you will see they are playing to you. You, the consumer, are the most important person that exists on the planet for anybody who's advertising on television. Maybe you've heard this kind of a phrase. I've got to find myself. That kind of phrase would have been unheard of in ancient Israel. That kind of phrase really should be unheard of in the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God and a person in it would say something like, I've got to find God. Seek him and I will live. I need to seek the Lord with all of my strength, with all of my mind, with all of my heart. I need to seek him. The commandment is, first, love the Lord your God, not love yourself. That's what the kingdom of God says. That's what a Jewish subculture in the ancient Middle East would say, is love God first. And what we hear is, no, you got to love yourself, baby, because you don't love yourself. You ain't going to love nobody. That's what we hear, and it's not true. That's the second commandment, not the first, to love your neighbor as yourself. And that is always a conjunction with your neighbor. You really can't get out of the whole community thing when you're part of the kingdom of God. It's not about you. It's about the community. I've got to please myself. I'm the one that's got to be happy in my life. That's why I'm leaving him. That's why I'm leaving her. That's why I'm quitting this job. That's why I'm leaving that church. That's why I'm moving. That's why I'm going to... California, is because I need to please myself, where the kingdom of God person would say, I need to please the Lord. You see, these cultures are in conflict, and at some point, we have to make a decision to confront the culture, because that culture is encroaching upon God's territory in our hearts. It's all about choices. And here's the weird thing is too many choices really make you unhappy. According to psychological studies, secular psychological studies they've done, more, the more choices you have, the less happy you are. Because there's always something better, right? It's like, what are you told? You are told, if you can just... Go to college. If you can make the choice to go to college, you'll feel smarter. Those of us who have been to college know that's not true. Or or, or if you go to college, you'll get a better job. <laughs> yeah. The laughter kind of sells. That's just not true. It was weird. I mean, I had a college education. I was selling for Century Marketing, and the highest paid salespeople only had a high school education. I don't know what to tell you about that. Bill Gates didn't finish college, neither did Steve Jobs. But we think, okay, so now that I've got my college degree, then maybe, uh, okay, what it is, I need another degree because this degree isn't enough. So you got a choice to get yet another degree and spend $60,000 to get a job that pays you thirty, right? Okay, you, you buy the car. You spend all this money that you don't have to go into debt for something that devalues as you drive it off of the car lot. And this is supposed to make you happy. You know, for a while it's great because it's got nice plush seats and, the, you know, the heaters work. And a lot like your old car where there was no heat or there was no back window or something, right? (laughs) And so you're driving this car and then you gotta pay for it and then years and then it gets dinged up and you're pissed off because it gets dinged up in the parking lot or somebody hits it and runs when it's parked on Pearl Street and you don't know who did it and you know, blah blah you gotta pay and blah, blah, blah. And next thing you know, like you've got this car payment for five years, and two years into it you're going, God, I am so miserable. I gotta get out of this car payment. I just want to get a junker, but I've got you owe thousands of dollars, right? That choice didn't make you happy. It's the same for anything material. More choices don't necessarily make us happy. And that's what the culture tells you. And so we, as a different kind of people, as a different group, as a culture that is opposed to the culture we live in, must make a decision. We must make a choice that we're not going to follow after the world. We're not going to desire those things. Because God knows what we need. And look at the birds of the air. They neither, what, plant nor, nor reap, and, and yet God takes care of them, Right? And look at the lilies of the field. You worry about what you're going to wear, but God says they're clothed in much more splendor than even the richest king the world has ever known. We make choices in advance that are in line with our culture. And beyond that, the culture promises it's all for us, right? It gives us choices, but that pleasure is only temporary it's only temporary (laughs) now I just think about some of the stuff that I've done you know when I used the credit card to buy stuff that I thought I needed and I was happy for a while and then I was miserable because I had this massive credit card debt that I had to pay off. It's only temporary. You make a decision to find some comfort, some intimacy with a person that you just met. And, you know, you feel pretty good while you're lying in bed those first few nights that you know each other. Because somebody's holding you and somebody cares. But then, because it doesn't have any kind of depth to it, the relationship turns sour and people leave. And then you feel worse than you did before you found that person What the culture offers is only temporary fulfillment of what you need. They're looking for that weakness, for that lack in you, and they're going to supply it. And then once they supply it, you'll feel good for a short time, and then you're going to feel worse. That's the culture. When you start to buck the system, things get bad. Let's take a look. When these young Hebrew boys decide, okay, we're going to make a stand. What is Ashpenaz afraid of? He's afraid the king will have his head. That's what happens when you don't go along with the culture. Let's talk about this for a second. These Hebrew guys were... um, Why did they make such a big deal about the, the king's table? Isn't that a good question? Because they didn't make a big deal about their names being changed. Their names got changed from... Names of Hebrew origin that glorified the one true God to the names that really glorified Babylonian gods. They didn't cause a big stink then. But there was something about the food. They had to draw a line somewhere in their lives where they said, this far and no farther. Okay, right, we're living in this culture, I understand that, but I am not going to totally cave to the culture in which I am held captive. And they decided on the food issue. Now, who knows why they decided this. Maybe it's because the foods weren't kosher. There's a lot of reasons why food may not be kosher. For example, maybe these foods were offered to pagan deities in a ritual sacrifice That would make them not kosher. Maybe it was pork. But wine certainly wasn't not kosher, just because it's wine, right? And maybe, for all I know, even the vegetables were offered to a pagan god. I don't know. I mean, it's not always black and white in this world. But these guys are saying, look, we're going to make a stand. We're going to say something. We're going to rely on God in the middle of this thing to take care of us, and we're not going to defile ourselves with food that we don't have to defile ourselves with. We as Christians have to make these kind of decisions well in advance. And I think by looking at these three Four young men, and what they did, we can probably pick up some pointers in dealing with the culture, in confronting the culture. These guys are captured. But Jerusalem is fallen. Israel has been unfaithful. It's suffering the consequences of its disobedience to God for hundreds of years. And now they're captive in a different culture. I want to speak a word of encouragement to those of you who have not been everything that God called you to be. Those of you who know that somehow you've blown it. And you are held captive by the culture in some way, shape, or form. It's not over. God's not done with you yet. He's still sovereign in your captivity. He's still the boss. He's still your God. You can still turn to him and make a stand. Maybe you made a stand about everything you should have made a stand about, but there's something in your life you can make a stand for. And what these three young men did, I don't know if you have this slide or not, But the first thing they did was to resolve not to defile themselves. We had it this morning. doesn't matter. Don't worry. Number one, resolve. Okay? They resolved not to eat the king's food. Not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. They made a resolution. They made a decision. They made a choice way before this that they were going to Follow God. What I'm trying to say is that when it comes to confronting the culture, you've got to make a choice about how you're going to live this life. And it's got to be in your heart. Not anywhere else. It's got to be here. Between you and God first. You don't make a decision to not fool around until you're married while you're making out on the couch. That's the wrong time to make that decision. You've got to resolve way before that in your private time with God that this is not what you're going to do. Resolve. You've got to resolve that when the gossip starts flying around the water cooler at work, that you're not going to join in. Because it is just so delicious to hear what's going on with everybody that if you're already at the water cooler, you get sucked in. This is the second point. You've got to have some kind of plan. You've got to have a plan, a resolve and a plan. It's not just enough to have the resolve. You've got to have a plan, and that plan may involve other people to help you. There was a guy that... um, (laughs) He was going to a Bible study, of all things, right? And um, it was being hosted by this woman that he was dating. And uh, so... People would come to the Bible study, and uh, then they would leave, and then he would stay, and they would talk, have a cup of coffee, and the next thing you do, they were in bed together. And so, his plan was, Mike, look, Bible study ends around 10 o'clock or so, I mean, I probably do want, you know, at least an hour or so to... Uh, to to talk with my girlfriend. Uh, But would you do me a favor? Would you call me at 11 o'clock? I want you to call me at 11 o'clock and ask me if I'm in the car on the way home or not, or how I'm doing. He goes, because I'll tell you what, just the thought that Mike Sayers is going to call me at 11 (laughs) o'clock is going to prevent me from doing some of the things that I want to do. And some of the things that she wants to do If, you know, our lower natures are given that kind of energy. So, so, you know, I got really creative in how I was doing this. So sometimes I'd call him, and the phone would ring, and he would answer, and he would say, Hi, I'm on my way home. I'd go, great, great, great. Other times I will call him, and there would be no answer, so I would leave a long message. (laughs) Hey, just praying for you here, you know, stay strong in the Lord, Brother. I really hope that you are in your car right now on the way home because, you know, if you don't call me back pretty soon, I'm going to call you again. Or uh, and then other times I would just text him. How's it going? <laughs> you know, you got to have some kind of plan. Now, so I'm sure Daniel and Han and I and Michelle and. Azariah, you know, together they, they, they were kind of helping each other out, right? To, to stay true to their Jewish beliefs and not defile themselves with the king's food. To stand against and confront the culture. You see, this is not something you can do on your own. You've got to have a plan. It's not just enough to have the resolve. I know a lot of Christians that have great resolves. They do them like every January 1st. They have these, but but there's no plan on how they're going to do it. You have to have a plan in place, and you know, and 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 Daniel has a plan. He goes to the to the uh, the 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 chief official, is Ashpenaz character, and he says, "Hey, we uh, can we figure this out somehow? Is there a way that maybe we can stay true to our beliefs and you can get what you want, because?" There's got to be a way we can do this. Because you know, I think if Daniel had and his friends had gone and said, "Look, we want a kosher chef in the back, we want a rabbi put on retainer to bless the food as soon as it's cooked and and make sure it's prepared the way it's supposed to be prepared, that wouldn't fly. So, you got to be smart about it. You got to have a plan. Tell you what, test us after 10 days. If we're If we're not in better shape, then, you know, do with us as you will. This gives a great opening for God to come through, does it not? Which is the last point, which is to receive what God has for you. You resolve to do the Lord's will, to confront the culture in this particular situation. You make a plan on how to do that. And then, you know, you're kind of out there, right? You have charged up the hill, and you are waiting for reinforcements to come behind you. Because God has to come through at that point, and God comes through in spades. Not only do they look healthier than all the other guys in school. All the other guys in school have got to start eating what Daniel and his friends are eating. Which, by the way, is not just vegetables and water according to an American mindset. First of all, they didn't have a distinction between fruits and vegetables. It's all that kind of stuff. And what the Hebrew word really means is anything that comes from seed. So it could have been grain, it could have been bread made from grain, you know, it could have been vegetables, it could have been fruits, all those things, all right? And water. So it wasn't as, this is not a cleansing diet, and they looked great after 10 days of cleansing diet. And you, I mean, girls will make this into a diet. Guys will make this into a diet if they think it'll help them out. And that's not what's going on here, because God comes through. God does a miracle. The fact that these guys look great after 10 days, that's a miracle. Every Jewish person reading this would realize that's a miracle. On top of that, there's a bonus from God because they resolved and they planned and they carried out their plan. There's a bonus. Listen to this. Verse 17, To these four young men God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. God comes through. Who does God want to give his gifts to? The people he can rely upon. Are there things that you've prayed for in this that God will bless you with spiritually that haven't come through yet? Why don't you try seeing where it is God wants you to take a stand and confront the culture you live in, resolve not to give in, Make a plan and follow through and see if God doesn't bless you in some way that you never even imagined. He's like that, right? As it said, we give to God in teaspoons and He gives to us in dump truck folds. Resolve, plan, receive. Resolve, plan, receive. Where is the culture trying to? put its arms around you and entice you into doing things that you really don't want to do or in not doing the things that you ought to do. I don't know what those are in your mind right now, but I'm sure there's some, right? For some, it's going to be sexual temptation. For others, it's going to be overindulgence of some kind. In the typical, you know, you've got your alcohol, you've got your drugs, you've got food. You've got partying. Where is it asking you to make a choice that is contrary to what you know as part of the kingdom of God? When's coming up? February 13th. Christians are going to be asked to give things up. I think that's the first step in confronting the culture. Giving things up. Some people maybe overindulge with the sweet tooth and they'll give up candy or give up ice cream or they'll give up all sorts of desserts, right? I know people who've given up cigarettes for Lent because they... Say, you know, I, I think, yeah, my t- body's a temple, and I really like smoking, but um, for 40 days, I think I'm going to confront uh, this part of myself, and I'm going to give it to God. I'm toying with the idea of giving up Facebook for 40 days. I mean, I like Facebook. I like keeping up with your lives. I love seeing pictures of you and where are you going, your relatives, your children, your parents? I love that kind of thing. But, you know, I find myself going to it sometimes a little too often because it's kind of like, you know, mental chewing gum or something for me. <laughs> you know, I, I just, I don't want to on Facebook. Don't know, I'm thinking like, yeah, wouldn't it be great if, like, if I didn't look at Facebook and rather read the Facebook. That's a groaner, I know. Not going to go on Facebook, going to get into the Facebook. All right. Well, what that says is maybe I should read the Bible more, seriously. And I'm thinking, yeah, you guys are going, Mike, that's terrible, but you'll remember what I just said, which is the whole point, right? So don't be surprised if I'm not on Facebook for 40 days starting February 13th. But some people fill their lives. I mean, like you can turn the music off in the car and just pray. Just turn the music off in the car. If you're in the car for half an hour a day, see what happens. Resolve to pray more. Make a plan. I'm going to turn off the music in the car and pray in the car. And then see what God gives to you. What are you going to receive for 40 days That's like 20 hours of prayer, right? What might God put in your heart, in your spirit? What might He give to you in terms of a spiritual gift, or an insight, or wisdom, or understanding? I can go on. All sorts of media, video games, entertainment. My gosh, entertainment. We are such the entertainment culture, are we not? Do we have to be entertained so much, really? Maybe we should give up television for a while. Maybe we should give up gossip. Maybe we should give up laziness. That's a hard one, huh? I'm going to get off my ass to the glory of God. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> I'm going I'm to give God. I, am deciding, I resolve to do more for God. And, and how, my plan is to get off my butt. I'm not going to lie down on my couch as much. I don't know. I'll find things to do. I don't know. But maybe I'll talk to my pastor. Maybe I'll talk to a Bible study leader or a friend. And I'll figure out what can I do if I'm giving up laziness. But, you know, this is more than just giving up stuff, isn't it? It's about taking a stand. There there, there are places in your life where the culture is captivated you. Where are you going to take a stand? It's more about just giving things up. It's about taking a stand. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, life of Daniel as recorded in his book. And thank you for the lives of his uh, three friends and their faithfulness to you. And Lord, let it inform our faith. Let it inform our our strategy in confronting the culture we live in. In Jesus' name, amen.